Hello, welcome. Um, I suspect some more people will wander in and they will inappropriately come in while you're talking to Mr. Lowe. They should come from that door and you just gotta roll with it. Go with the flow. Thank you all for coming. I am Heather Hendershot, a professor of film and media in Comparative Media Studies and Writing here at MIT. Very excited to have you here for our CMS uh, colloquium uh, event tonight um, with Bernard Dionysius Gagan. Uh, and he will be speaking first, and then Bruno Pavot will be uh, his interlocutor, and then hopefully we'll have a bit of time for some questions from the audience, and we'll uh, uh, tie things up around 6.30. Um, Dr. Gagan is a reader in the History and Theory of Digital Media at King's College London, which is sort of the equivalent of an associate professor uh, here in the States. Uh, his research investigates how cultural sciences shape and are shaped by digital media, and this concern spans his writing on the mutual constitution of cybernetics and human sciences, ethnicity and AI, and the role of mid-20th century military vigilance in the development of interactive multimedia computing. His book, Code from Information Theory to French Theory, which has just recently come out, congratulations, uh, examines how liberal technocratic projects with roots in colonialism, mental health, and industrial capitalism <coughs> shaped early conceptions, oh boy, of digital media and cybernetics, and it offers a revisionist history of French theory as an effort to come to terms with technical ideas of communications and as a predecessor to the digital humanities. And I believe it draws on the MIT archives. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Bernard's current book project, uh, Screenscapes, How Formats Render Territories, draws on infrastructure studies and format studies to offer a radical account of how digital screens produce global space. And he's also the author, um, previously, of the cybernetic apparatus, cybernetics, liberalism, and the reform of the human sciences. Bruno Perrault is the Cynthia L. Reed Professor of French Studies and Language, and he specializes in critical theory, politics, and contemporary French literature and culture. His research focuses specifically on gender and translation, queer theory in France and the US, kinship, adoption, and bioethics, minority politics in the global context, <coughs> not COVID, I promise, <coughs> just a little dust in my throat, <coughs> narratives of class, race, and sexuality, legal hermeneutics, and social theories of justice. He's the author of numerous books, including Queer Theory, the French Response, and the Politics of Adoption, Gender, and the Making of French Citizenship. <coughs> I'll be going for water just a moment. <coughs> His most recent book, Sphere d'Injustice pour un Universalisme Minoritaire, Spheres of Injustice for a Minoritarian Universalism, uh, proposes a new theory of justice based on a cross-cultural study of minority politics and anti-discrimination law in France and the US. Please join me in welcoming. <laughs> I'll be right back. So uh, thank you. To, uh, I guess there's no uh, amplification. So if there's any volume issues, just uh, raise a hand at some point, and I'll modulate. So it's a real honor to be back here, um, as Heather alluded to. So this book has in May, this book which I'll be discussing today has deep roots in the time I spent at MIT. David Mendel was my sponsor and mentor as a visiting student. Debbie Douglas and a team of others helped me work with um, materials at the MIT archives and MIT museums. Now I'm only going to touch only passingly on uh, on some of the MIT material today, but that's, that should not be mistaken for it. It's a kind of deep infrastructure that's behind the project and much more in the book. 
Um, and the other thing I just wanted to say, you know, in, in many ways, this book is the, the debts it has to, to two staff here are really intense. On the one hand, at Northwestern, I had been working with Jenna S. Light, who's now in STS here. And as I mentioned, I worked with David Mendel. And between the two of them, you had two different ways of rethinking the history of cybernetics. Jen Light talked about cybernetics in terms of uh, Cold War social policy, urban planning, uh, coming out of the Rand Corporation. Uh, and David, among the many things he's sort of done, is talked about histories of uh, interwar feedback cultures that form the basis for this, not just cybernetics, but also the rise of things like information theory. And so in a way, this, a little bit of this talk today in the book itself is, you know, a very modest remixing of these two things, where it takes the social science and technocratic history light talks about and applies it to a Mendelian prehistory, right? And so if someone said this book looked like a mashup or imitation of their two books together, I would be deeply flattered. Um, so, and then I should also say, and while I was writing this book though, I was writing back, uh, the, when I was writing the dissertation, I was bouncing back and forth between HASTS, uh, the science studies program here, and comparative media. Um, and you could see probably a lot of hints of alternative readings in this history that owe a lot to what was happening at uh, comparative media at that time. So, with no further ado, thank you for allowing me to return and present some of the findings that people in this room made possible. So in the 2010s, recent Wesleyan University graduate, Anna Weiner, quit her job as a Manhattan literary assistant to join a booming digital startup in Silicon Valley. Her 2020 memoir of that time, Uncanny Valley, recalls not so much a change in industries as a shift in cultures of analysis in changes in what it meant to produce strings of text. She wrote, quote, when I'd edited or vetted manuscripts at the literary agency, I moved primarily on instinct and feeling with the constant terror that I would ruin someone else's creative work. Code, by contrast, was responsive and uncaring. Like nothing else in my life, when I made a mistake, it let me know immediately, end quote. Code transformed the text into a rule-bound series in which readers and writers played a role more akin to mathematical functions. The shift of cultures and analysis did not, for all that, demand that Wiener abandon her liberal arts training. If liberal arts had taught Wiener to read text for the racial, ethnic, gendered, and national encoding of signifiers, Silicon Valley equipped her with the resources to navigate these markers at scale. Of colleagues, she wrote, quote, They'd gone to top-tier private colleges and were fluent in the jargon of media studies and literary theory, end quote. In her firm's capacious record of user analytics, she found a vast database ordered in terms more evocative of cultural studies than electrical engineering. Quote, data could be segmented by anything an app collected. Age, weight, income bracket, favorite movies, education, kinds, proclivities, country, city, cell phone carrier, end quote. In the big data of Silicon Valley, a notion of impersonal, non-semantic codes governing signification, preached by generations of professors steeped in French theory of Michel Foucault, Jacques Lacan, Roland Barthes, Yulia Kristeva, Luce Irgaray, found a practical embodiment as the stochastic parsing of cultural codes. So Wiener's memoir 
of Silicon Valley offers for me an introduction to the intertwined legacies of informatics and cultural theory that stand at the center of my book, Code from Information Theory to French Theory. So put simply, in that book, I sought to uncover the sources of what seemed like a deep and abiding kinship between cultural and technical sciences, between critical theory and fields such as computer science. The rapports among this domain, as they took shape in the course of spending time at MIT, going through archives here, ended up expanding and becoming much larger than I expected. What I really uncovered in what I think is a real profound complementarity, parallelism, intertwining of computer science and cultural theory is a story of how planet, planetary scale strategies for structuring modern academic research universities promoted digital computing and a closely related theory of cultural codes as a manner of allying natural, technical, and human sciences in a collective project of planetary struggle aimed at countering the threats that forces such as racism, fascism, madness, and colonialism, and in particular decolonization, posed to Western industrial democracies. So, what I write about in the book but is also the kind of assumed backdrop. We generally have some knowledge of how it is at the rise of industrial modernity, and its complex reordering of culture among racial, class, ethnic differences, regional differences, brought forth the call for new kinds of scientific and technical solutions to political problems, right? Progressive era. And with it, the explosion of so-called scientific philanthropies, Robin Barron philanthropies, uh, that sought to fund a new kind of technical apparatus that, in, that was comprised of universities, hospitals, laboratories, government experts, as a way of fixing social concerns. Right? That's, in a sense, the world we live in today, albeit the, albeit the technological solutionism, in some ways has migrated to other spheres than scientific philanthropy and maybe even beyond the university. Um, one of the things that struck me about that, and I think we're all aware of, is with this rise of technocracy, of course, you have a new kind of political and epistemic power, you could say capital, that accrued to intellectuals who could position themselves as expert technicians equipped to tinker on the body politic. Now within our histories of technocracy, we generally have a role of how people like Vannevar Bush figured within these histories, Jerome Wiesner and so on. Less attention has been played to the roles of the humanities and social sciences, more precisely, the human sciences would be the historical term between 1930 and 1960, 1970. And the role of the human sciences in guiding, organizing, structuring the new technocracy, its aspirations, and I would say quite frequently, also whispering in the ears of philanthropists, university presidents, engineers, to give meaning to this idea of a technical fix to give meaning to this idea that there's kind of a homology of sort between technology and the social body, right? So in a sense, throughout my talk, I'm gonna talk about technocracy. When I say technocracy, it's important to keep in mind, I don't mean like a society fixed by technology or run by technology, right? What I really mean is, uh, 
uh, a rhetoric of depoliticization in which you take contentious social and political problems and you transfer them, you translate them into problems for expert technical solution. In this sense, technocracy is not quintessentially techno technological, it's highly technical, but it's a rhetoric of technology applied to politics. And that application and its meaning, because it's not a technological problem, does not, in the first instance, come from engineers inventing things. It comes from a whole complex of social and political ideals that really are more rooted in the human sciences. So in my book, I talk about a host of anthropologists that I think of in terms of the rise of technocracy, the rise of a new aspiration for communication sciences that are not necessarily grouped together around histories of cybernetics. So anthropologists like Levi Strauss, Claude Levi Strauss, Margaret Mead, and Gregory Bateson, linguists like Roman Jakobson and Yulia Kristeva, uh, psychotherapists such as Jacques Lacan and Luce Irgaray, who partially in response to the demands of technocracy, partially in dialogue with new sciences like computer science, informatics, recast themselves as something, something a little new and different, cultural theorists. Cultural theorists speaking with a kind of scientism about society in terms of structures, codes, systems. And most of, most of, these, most of these people that I talk about in my book, some of whom I touch on today, Not all of them, but a general hallmark of them is either having escaped genocides, been refugees, been exiles, or for example, been inside asylums. And these are all situations where they encountered a kind of unspeakable violence on human bodies. Or they lived in the shadow of World War II, Holocaust, and they had this incredible sense of that existing intellectual and political modes had not risen to the demands, for example, of fascism, or were not even remotely prepared to deal with what was coming by way of decolonization. And out of that, they adopt a new, a new kind of expert discourse, that of cultural theory, that of structuralism, that of um, an analysis in terms of systems and codes, as a way of countering unchecked violence. So, in a way, it's, I'm jiggling a bit with the history of, and this already was alluded to in the opening, the history of relations between, say, cultural sciences and technical sciences. But that's not exactly to say that the work is, it's like, it's very tempting to have this kind of paranoid discourse. It all comes from cybernetics or whatever. And that's not really the argument of the book. Um, I don't really aim to reject the opposition between instrumental and humanistic reason, right, between STEM and STEAM, between C.P. Snow's so-called uh, two cultures. The aim is really to understand how these differences between two cultures are put to work, how they belong to larger social and political contexts that subtend kind of both sides of the equation, as it were. And the people I write about were kind of experts in mobilizing these differences to produce new kind of epistemic, political, and social interventions in the name of a kind of expert discourse. And the, the hint, the, you know, the conception of the paper is that, the talk today is that out of that you got new forms of knowledge and analysis, which it seems to me thrive today 
on both college and corporate campuses in distinct forms. So, and the aim is to think these distinct milieus that function together. So my presentation today is rather different than what I do in the book. The book is a very kind of simple chronological history, moving from discipline to discipline, site to site. <clears throat> but the real problem is something like conjunctions these conjunctions of distinct epistemic and cultural scenes, and the manner in which they produce what, you know, to borrow a term from my subject, the structuralists, they produce something like distinctive features, right? So when someone like Roman Jakobson was working at MIT, the study of phonemes, you can't, famous structural linguistic concept, you can't study phonemes in terms of their intrinsic properties, right? When you have two phonemes, two sound units juxtaposed to one another, you can start identifying their distinct, features in relationship to one another, they're distinctive features. So in that same spirit, as I did in the opening talk, I'm gonna quickly cycle through in the talk a series of what I call geotechnical conjunctions. The first one was already Middletown, so Wesleyan University, Manhattan and Silicon Valley in the 2010s. The second one, New York City and Paris in the 1960s. Third one, Dutch Bali, Manhattan and Cambridge, Massachusetts, 1935 to 1945. Cambridge, Massachusetts and Paris, and the final scene is France and Algeria in the 19, from 1954 to 1964. And out of that, try to offer this history of this relation between scenes that is, on one hand, deeply intertwined, but also can never really resolve into one global picture. And that is sort of the planetary struggle I'm talking about. This planetary problem of mobilizing new discourses to bring disciplines and regions into relation with one another and most of the human scientists I talk about were experts at this mobilizing of different scenes. So, this whole notion of thinking about conjunctions and scenes, it's, and getting away from what the book does, this chronological history, part of it is actually about the disordered nature of the world, right? And that we're talking about a set of intellectual and political and even technological formations that are not quite chronological and orderly. So it's on that same principle, I purposely go through the scenes in a non-chronological manner because it kind of connotes something of the spirit of this planetary struggle which I'm describing about and the fact that it's, it feels disordered. So in 1967, the famous semiologist, now he's famous, uh, Roland Barthes launched a seminar in Paris at the École des Artitudes en Sciences Sociales, so the Institute for Advanced Study in the Social Sciences, dedicated to the close reading of Honoré de Balzac's novella Saracine, in which Barthes purported to reveal in excruciating technical detail the pervasive work of discursive codes within the novella. And he said these codes structured a diverse range of phenomena, including class, gender, fashion, desire, he would later publish his work as SZ, SZ, kind of famous structuralist account of narrative. For Bart, word by word, close reading revealed not only the pervasive, and pervasive is almost too mild a word, the ubiquitous codification of language, but also its ultimate undoing from within. But what he variously termed cacography, so the writing of noise, counter-communication and noise itself, which he said was constantly erupting from within the no novella and 
bringing disorder to this attempt to produce codes. That's what the novella is about. That's what, his, that's what his seminar was about, what it said about the novella, and what SZ kind of brought to the fore. That same year, Daniel Bell, the sociologist at Columbia University, well known for his writings on post-industrial reason, would write, quote, what has now become decisive for society is the new centrality of theoretical knowledge. The primacy of theory over empiricism and the codification of knowledge into abstract systems of symbols that can be translated into many different and varied circumstances, end quote. Now what Bell had in mind was particularly technocrats, many of them coming from Cambridge, Massachusetts, that had gathered in various formations around the Kennedy uh, and Johnson administrations, right? However, nonetheless, he's describing something that rings in a kind of uncanny manner with what's taking place in Paris and places like the School of Advanced Study and the Social Sciences. So on two sides of the Atlantic, analysts of almost incompatible stripes embrace this theory of codification as a manner of interrogating how far analysis might go in defining order and disorder in social and cultural bodies. Now, for French critics of structuralism, structuralism I have in mind, Levi-Strauss, Jacobson, Barthes, Lacan, and so on. For French critics of structuralism, this parallel fascination with codification on both sides of the Atlantic in the 1960s was one political history with two distinct settings. Uh, I mean, as, as I talk, and, and I see David, I mean, so David has this wonderful article with Jerome Siegel, and Slava Garovich on the international reception of cybernetics, where actually much of this is spelled out. Distinct receptions of one global political history. And so when I'm talking about the critics of structuralism, who do I have in mind? These people who said there's one political history behind this phenomenon. Henri Lefebvre, Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, and Félix Guattari, among others who castigated structuralists for what they said was a slavish adherence to a logic of codes, systems, and structures that they said was borrowed from research universities in the United States and their work in cybernetics, computing, and information theory, and in particular, MIT. So interviewed in 1966, de Beauvoir said, in structuralist reason, quote, there exists neither misery nor unhappiness. There are only systems, end quote. That same year, Sartre told another interviewer, <clears throat> this is a kind of important sentence. In a technocratic civilization, there's no more room for philosophy. Look at what's happening in the United States. Philosophy has been replaced by science humaine, literally human sciences, but more accurately, the behavioral sciences. Thinking replaced by technician philosophers. End quote. So these charges amounted to an attack on what was really a new practice of cultural theory, taking root in France, really exploding in the 1960s, and where later North American readers would find in structuralism and post-structuralism a new face for Marx, Freud, Heidegger, and Nietzsche. Early French readers saw in it a dogmatic scientism 
in the thrall of a depoliticized and technocratic US social science. So how did we get to this point where you have this strangely interrelated history, but actually slightly different readings between 1960s Paris and say the rise of a so-called French theory in the US in the course of the 80s and 90s? To get at that, we need to jump to the next geotechnical conjunction. Dutch Bali, New York City, 1935 to 1945. And we need to start grasping a context in which it makes sense to grasp phenomena as varied as literature, data, dance, political crisis in terms of code. And so to do that, I would suggest it, takes, it helps to step back and ask a slightly different question. So how was it that colonial ethnographers Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson, who spent much of the 1920s and 1930s innovating cultural ethnographic methods in Asia and the Pacific, came to co-found what, in 1946, became known as the Macy Conferences on Cybernetics, which was said to be a clearinghouse popularizing early ideas of computing across the sciences, and particularly the social sciences. On the left, we see Mead and Bateson in Bali. Bottom right, we see a picture from the Macy Conferences. So for decades, historians of science and technology have told us that cybernetics came out of hardcore engineering problems of the 1940s, with the exception of at least one person in the room, uh, like shooting down airplanes and transmitting error-free data, linked to mathematicians such as Norbert Wiener, John von Neumann, and Claude Shannon, whose research in turn laid the foundations for computing, information theory, game theory, and the post-war boom in digital computing and electrical engineering. So that history of where cybernetics comes from, it is not wrong. It is, however, deeply tendentious. It's the product of a mid-century ideology of engineering and mathematics and war as sort of the shepherd, as the fountainhead of technological invention. A history that centers invention and experimentation on sites like Cambridge, Massachusetts, or the high-tech battlefields of France, Germany, and the Pacific. And in so doing, it obscures this other network I'm trying to get at of media technical experimentation and conflict, out of which you also get media technical invention. This was underway in sites such as Bali and Burma, and it was spearheaded by practitioners of the so-called human sciences. So to get at this other kind of history of cybernetics, what it's up to and where it's coming from, its particular relationship to the human sciences. So I would briefly cite the remarks of Frank, Frank Fremont Smith, the Macy Foundation medical director, the Macy Foundation sponsored the conferences, the Macy conferences. And so at the opening of the 1949 uh, Macy conferences on cybernetics, he explained the goal of the conferences and what they were up to. He said, quote, the problem of communication is largely a problem of human relations. And for its solution, requires intensive and comprehensive scientific study of man. In order to study man, it is necessary to bring in every one of the physical and biological sciences and every one of the social sciences also. Thus, in the study of man, we find the eventual unification of all the sciences. And here it seems to me we find a really essential source for cybernetics. Artillery, electronics, these are key issues. Data transmission. But organizing the conferences, which were funded by a very classical, robber baron scientific philanthropy oriented towards fixing social problems, 
was the search for a grand science of man rooted in the media technical analysis of communication systems broadly conceived. And you know, hence you have the, the original title of the conferences. Um, the study of feedback mechanisms in social and biological systems. That can, that can of course be a technological problem, right? but it was not the initial frame that set these conferences moving in. It was a particular reason for bringing in engineers, however. So to this program, Mead and Bateson brought not only the anthropologist disciplinary expertise in the science of man, this is what anthropology is about, they also brought more than a decade of groundbreaking media technical expertise founded on the notion that emerging media lay the groundwork for a rigorous approach to the study of culture as systems and codes. So the popular renown of Mead and Bateson, their emergence as key mediators in co-founding the Macy Conferences in Cybernetics, sprang in part from the groundbreaking research in Bali in the, from 1936 to 1939. And what they really, what they set out to do there in this work in the 1930s was to have a new kind of system of total media technical analysis and capture of culture uh, in, its, in a sort of natural environment. And they, what they promised was, and this is, this is all a set of promises and a set of rhetorics, not at all, the actual practice, not at all what was delivered, right? They promise you're going to get a non-romantic, scientistic account of indigenous cultures. They claim that rather than using figurative language of ethnography to describe native populations, they would have, you know, through tens of thousands of feet of moving images, tens of thousands of photographs, massive, extensive archives of magnetic recordings, new technical systems of rigorous empirical uh, transcription. The claim, as opposed to the product, the claim is indigenous logic will account for itself. It will give its own objective empirical presentation through the promises of new media. And out of that, you'll get a different way of understanding cultural systems that's not psychologistic, it's certainly not classically liberal, but it's about cultural systems that run through, for example, breastfeeding, dance, cooking, trade, right? And the, 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 the goal was to document this kind of total system undergirding the society. Its availability, its visibility came from technical media. And then what's really a key point, because as I said, this is essentially a history of technocracy. I gave one definition of technocracy. Another way of describing technocracy is it's also experts who speak on behalf of. Right? It's a complex system of representation and analysis of capture, but it's still the expert comes in and makes it legible. Right? So there's a, there's a profound political hierarchy here. On the basis of this, this was the basis on which their work was funded, what brought them back in the United States into the circle of the Macy Foundation was they said, we're going to be able to fix problems like schizophrenia or juvenile delinquency. Because the idea was you had these timeless cultures living, these cultures living outside of history who had natural regulatory and feedback mechanisms that prevented the kinds of degeneracy said to thrive in the United States. 
particularly in places like ghettos. So out of that work, you get a couple of things. You get clearly a major, major foundation for mobilizing something like the Macy Conferences on feedback in social and biological systems. You get out of it a, a, an emerging conception of feedback cultures that's drawing from new forms of media technical research. And you have within it a, a very compelling rationale that also fits with a broader, a broader thrust of technocracy after the progressive era to bring engineers and mathematicians to the table, to bring people like Wiener and Shannon and von Neumann to the discussion. That does not mean that Wiener, von Neumann, and Shannon do not transform the discussion in decisive manners. This is not to say that, you know, nonetheless, the manner in which this performance of theory and analysis, the set of analogies between social and machine systems can be mobilized, as I said earlier, is not in the first instance technological. It's technical, but it's primarily political, and it's a rhetoric of techniques, a rhetoric of systems that they help put into motion. So this is, in a sense, step, where are we at, step three already? A different kind of history of where the Macy conferences on cybernetics come from and their tremendous power and influence. And the, the far reach across, for example, the social sciences is no simple story of technical research disseminating to the human sciences, right? It's also a story of human sciences setting up technical research with the aid of foundations. Okay, next scene, next geotechnical conjunction. Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Paris, 1949 to 1962. 1949, the thrice-exiled Jewish linguist Roman Jakobson, who, by this time, he's escaped the Soviets, who killed many of his friends and colleagues. He escaped the Nazis, who killed many of his friends and colleagues, almost killed him. He's arrived in the United States. In a couple years, he's going to almost get pulled in front of the House Un-American Activities uh, Committee except he has a friend from Columbia University, his former president, Dwight Eisenhower, who seems to have intervened to save, to save set it in context, a Russian Jewish linguist, right? It's not a great identity to have at this moment, right? Um, this is important for a lot of the people I'm talking about. The, 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 the degree of like, human tragedy that these people fled again and again, and witnessed again and again, explains a lot of their ambitions for technical research. It's not a naivete, but it's a sense of the world is in a moment of crisis. So 1939, thrice exiled Russian Jewish linguist Roman Jakobson is appointed Samuel Hazard Cross Professor of Slavic Languages and Literatures at Harvard University. Parallel to his appointment, He's been a visitor to the Macy Conferences on Cybernetics. He's been in dialogue with officers at the Rockefeller Foundation, among them Warren Weaver, who variously commented on, I would even say co-authored, Claude Shannon's Mathematical Theory of Communication. And in those, out of those conversations, Jakobsen has been saying, we're finally going to put the European science of structural linguists on rigorous scientific foundations. And it's with the aid of information theory, it's the aid of Shannon and, Wiener, Shannon and Weaver, and it's with inspiration from people like Norbert Wiener, who had previously held the same chair in Slavic studies. 
And so based on that promise, he gets 50,000 and then another 30,000 uh, dollars from the Rockefeller Foundation. And one of the things he does is the first thing he's doing is setting up research with linguists and engineers at MIT. He gets affiliated with the Research Laboratory of Electronics to establish what is said, what he's promising is going to be a technically precise informatic approach to the study of language. And the main theme of his work, following closely on what we already saw in Meet and Bateson in Bali, is something like media technical analysis or total capture of a cultural system, such that it becomes calculable. In his case, right, the whole the funding he's getting from the Rockefeller Foundation, his position at uh, the RLE, is dealing with a different sort of cultural system, right? The Russian language. And a different sort of sense of being outside or external or exiled from that culture and observing it from, from beyond. But nonetheless, you see a kind of similar fascination with something like informatic enclosure of a system followed by extrapolation mathematically. So here, for example, we see one of his uh, outcomes of this project, a very famous reinterpretation of poetics in terms of Claude Shannon's communication schema. And this was you know, one of a series of projects to turn Saussure into informatics. Here we also see spectrograms, in this case of Saussure's grandson speaking French. This was captured by Jakobsen and his colleagues at the RLE as part of an attempt to basically, again, we're getting back to distinctive features identify distinct phonemes, break them down into the, the juxtapositions that define their qualities, vocalic, consonantal, compact, diffuse, on the basis of which the idea was it never really works. Really is being, it never works. Uh, you're supposed to be able to do a calculation in terms of binary digits, of bits, of the amount of information contained in any sort of utterance, right? So this is going to be the basis of a new vast communication science, and particularly one that links North America to Western Europe. So on the basis of this work, structuralism, and Jakobson keeps on flying back to places like Paris, structuralism, which he's, he's in dialogue with Claude Levi-Strauss, the French anthropologist to whom he's having copies of cybernetics and Shannon's communication theory, he's having these sent to Paris. Uh, this new science of structuralism that's increasingly think of thinking of culture in terms of systems and codes is exploding in post-war France, right? It's a rigorous scientific theory, a radical alternative to existentialism, which they're saying is naive and political. It has no grasp of the true, possibly fascinating, possibly insidious systems undergirding a culture. And you also see at this moment what's pretty key. Under de Gaulle, France is undergoing a kind of almost unimaginably aggressive modernization, including the founding of new universities, such as the aforementioned School of Advanced Studies in the Social Sciences, a project also aided by the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and this proliferation of laboratories and research centers in things like graphical methods, mathematical methods in the social sciences, uh, a communication center at the Ecole Pratique, uh, Ecole des Autitudes and Sciences Sociales. And these, la and of course, famously, Levi-Strauss's Laboratory of Social Anthropology. And you have people like Foucault working in asylums, Levi-Strauss, uh, Lacan teaching in a hospital. This proliferation of highly technical spaces, labs, seminars, 
across which they're starting to say, there's essentially, and this is, this is, I'm taking some interpretive jumps just to save time, there's a different way of dealing with something like cultural and political disorder and violence, right? And it's not necessarily dealing, you don't treat a patient by putting them in straitjackets and locking them in a room. You deal with this abstract system of codes and communication, in the case of Lacan, modeled on automata theory, that undergirds the illness in a particular individual body, right? And I would really say, in a, in a profound manner, that does not happen without the RLE. But that's not the same as what they were doing in the RLE either. Distinct scenes, one history. So, next scene, France and Algeria, 1954 to 1964. So a major theme of the French reception of communication theory was fears over decolonization and imperial decline. This is not simply because it's often seen as U.S. imperialism in France, though it's also that, right? But thinkers as varied as Sartre, de Beauvoir, Derrida, contended in public and in private that the meaning of decolonization was linked, the decolonization, the collapse of the French Empire, was linked in a disturbing manner to the rise of this thing called the sciences of man in 50s and 60s France. And so, Many of the intellectuals that we associate with French theory, people like Foucault and Derrida, they spent sabbaticals or summers or lecture tours in colonial and post-colonial territories, Algeria and Tunisia. You had someone like Derrida spending his summers in Paris at the beginning of the Algerian War, recounting it to, recounting it to his mentor Althusser in Paris. And then a couple years later back in Paris, suggesting in a very profound manner, and this is sort of what deconstruction is all about, technology is partially about metaphysics, it's about the legacy of Western culture, and we're dealing with a global reordering of the planet that will transform politics and technology. And we need to contend with this. You read it in translation, it sounds very abstract and theoretical. I mean, it was, it was abstruse, it was technocratic, but it's also deeply politically engaged. So one of the greatest, so you have within this, this fascination with communication theory that's related to fears of French imperial decline, problems raised by decolonization, and what does it mean to recognize logics and politics and forms of knowledge that come from former colonies that are now said to be our peers and our equals. And so running through the French theory of the 60s and the reception of structuralism and its cybernetic iterations, is this fear of something like ensauvagement, right? This fear of becoming savage, right? It's a very far-right fear that is alive and well in France today. One of the premier examples of this is Roland Barthes' book, Mythologies. Right? At the core of Roland Barthes' mythologies is a basic idea. It's, again, it's borrowing on structural ethnography to explain everyday mass media communications in France, and it's saying these mass technical industrial communications can be explained and elucidated through our knowledge of indigenous myth. And it's actually the same kind of logic. And you're starting to see a kind of flip. Levi-Strauss applies cybernetic theories to make sense of it, uh, indigenous cultures. And now, actually, Bart is saying we can, 
we can take indigenous cultures to start explaining what modern technical communications is. All right, so this is kind of ubiquitous across the period. The work that really captured this, I think better than anything else, Levi Strauss's 1962 work, The Savage Mind. So in it, he contends that modern and primitive cultures, again, primitive is his word, uh, Modern primitive cultures were organized around a complex system of informational codes that functioned sort of like metadata ordering empirical datum from above. According to Levi Strauss, in treating animals, plants, and other aspects of the natural world as a system of obscure signs, the savage mind had discovered, quote, principles of interpretation whose heuristic value in accordance with reality have only been revealed to us Westerners recently through recent inventions such as telecommunications, computers, and electron microscopes, end quote. And here you start seeing the politics of structuralism that Sartre was not so ready to embrace. So a common critique of the structuralists and the post-structuralists is a kind of a sense that they're oddly quiescent about the brutal, brutal French-Algerian war and other conflicts, as opposed to Sartre, who's ready to go out and protest colonialism, right? But what you actually saw was a, a totally different strategy for grappling with the political fallout of a phenomenon like decolonization, a mobilization of what he understood to be the most modern technical sciences, and a discovery of their supposed homologues in indigenous contexts. And Levi Strauss was basically saying this confrontation means that all the orienting knowledge of Western contexts, particularly French, science, objectivity, human rights, would have to undergo a kind of inalterable transformation in the wake of decolonization. And he expresses this with his famous remark at the end of the book, right? Quote, I believe the ultimate goal of the human sciences to be not the con to constitute but to dissolve man, end quote. So confrontation with cybernetics, followed by indigenous knowledge that explained the true meaning of cybernetics led to a kind of wisdom that rendered cybernetics and its anthropologies untenable. Right? This is not some nice dissolution of the figure of man. It's a prediction of massive, well, decoding, a massive kind of political disorder. So with that, I'm going to kind of wrap up. That's my end of geotechnical conjunctions for the day, maybe. So in today's social networks, we find in practice a mapping of distinctive features governing the genesis, exchange, and dynamism of communication such as Mead, Bateson, and Jakobsen, to say nothing of Levi Strauss, could have only dreamt of. The account of what a social network is, in case of one particular patent, even recalls what would be the kind of high watermark of structuralism as a high modern social science. A social network, Facebook lawyers explained for the US Patent Office and its bureaucrats, quote, is a social structure made up of entities. A social network is a social structure made up of entities such as individuals or organizations that are connected by one or more types of interdependency or relationships such as friendship, kinship, common interest, financial exchange, dislike, or relationships of belief, knowledge, or prestige, end quote. So that description is, in part, 
the first of a fuller description in the, in the patent of how network theory today might allow for a new mode of cultural analysis to the improvement of the technologies of capture in Silicon Valley social networks. So what links might we draw between contemporary social networks and their preoccupation with the seemingly historical concerns of kinship networks and social structure that figured centrally in the hype around cybernetics between 1930 and 1970. Um, so first and foremost, it seems to me, human scientists like Mead, Bateson, and Jakobsen occupy a privileged place in the archeology span of analytics, of cultural analytics, central to contemporary IT industries. Or more perhaps, their ability to conjoin cultures and spaces, Bali and New York, Cambridge and Paris, complicates the notion of two cultures that would suggest the history of technical media and the history of the humanities and social sciences operate on strictly parallel tracks. More specifically, it suggests to me a new kind of genealogy of what it means to render culture calculable, to transform embodied and lived experience into theoretical and discrete terms for parsing a system, codes, and structure without an unspeakable series of human catastrophes. You don't get structural analysis. And as a practical sense, unless you have cultures that have been shattered into pieces, you don't start getting a theoretical system that organizes them according to these fragmentary elements cohering into structure. That ability to, that, that practice of cultural theory itself is, it's not an abstract way of explaining culture, it's partially a response to terrifying violence and to make order of the world again. So this in turn invites a reassessment of social networking and its vast investment in cultural analytics. For the human scientists of yesterday, enamored of cybernetics, their utopian ambitions for vast symbolic inventories of cultural codes were motivated for this search for counter-agents to political violence and really political terror. They saw the problem of decolonization as a historical and political fact, central to the reform of Western science and, and linked in an obscure but troubling manner to communications research. As such, their work in decoding was conceived as a preemptive move against the dangers of an unknown and violent future. And it's for this reason, they sought to embed cybernetic methods in universities, museums, and policy, right? This was a political and ethical project, a deeply compromised one, but it was a sense of how can we put the power of modern technology and its political realization in the hands of people that are, for example, invested in human culture. And so for this reason, so it seems to me that's their set of imperatives. It's not clear to me a same set of embedding imperatives, attachment to institutions and culture, inform, for example, the realization of their kind of successor methods in Facebook or Google and Silicon Valley today. What I am, however, certain of is my belief that we would do well to embrace our role in these histories, a role that because it is neither innocent nor harmless may bring with it some experience for constructive intervention. A training in culture is an excellent foundation for the development of new cultural technologies. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you very much for your presentation and for your book. I, I really learned uh, uh, a lot. So I, I will start with maybe two broad 
definitional questions um, coming from somebody who is a completely outsider vis-à-vis <laughs> uh, vis uh, vis uh, information theory. Um, the first question is about coding and decoding. Yeah. You mentioned Bart, Jacobson, Levi-Strauss, and, and, and others. Um, Levi-Strauss described codes as, uh, if I remember well, as an interpretation of science. Right. And what is at stake in his work is not only to decode what he observed uh, empirically, but also to code what he, uh, he observed, right? Uh, this is very clear when he talked about the prohibition of incest, for instance. Uh, and it's not the case so much uh, in Bart's work. He's mostly focused on this, what you described, you know, sender, transmission, receiver. Yeah. So first question is basically the following. Can you tell us more about this tension in their work between coding and decoding, and what does it tell you vis-à-vis um, -vis your conclusion about contemporary politics? And the second, which is a way to ask you, basically, how would you define today a code? Yeah. Um, and the second aspect, the second definitional aspect, has to do with another tension, which I heard in your presentation. Uh, between uh, today and the genealogy that you, you, you draw. The tension is that today there's not only a proliferation of codes, but obviously spreading of codes. Yeah. And there's a major tension between this phenomenon and the way people are identified as unified subjects, uh, mm -hmm. uh, especially legal subjects, uh, but also social subjects. Um, so, and, and, and you call for sort of new genealogies, right? So I'm wondering to what extent your argument is in a way to say that the notion of network, which is defined here, is actually a too weak definition compared to what was used at the time, which is the notion of system. And that's another way to ask you, what is a system for you, uh, for you today? It also matters politically, yeah. right? Because I mean, conservative groups refuse this notion of system, uh, especially when it's system of oppression, like uh, uh, systemic racism. So that's why I'm asking uh, the question, just to launch the conversation. So the first question, okay, I'm going to repeat it. And you just make sure I've, I've got it right. Um, so the question, this, these historical notions of coding and decoding, how do they relate to the present, right? And I think what, part of what you're pointing to is, if I understand right, uh, you know, Levi Strauss in a manner that I think was very close to what I described in Mead and Bateson, and their almost both admirable and sometimes phantasmatic goal of getting an objective description that allows indigenous cultures to account for themselves, right? So Mead, Bateson, Levi Strauss, in a certain sense, they're, they're literally trying to code data. They're, and they, they'll, they'll talk about coding data, transcribe it, describe its systems. Um, Bart, by contrast, is reading the codes in culture. Is that right? So we have two steps there, and for the purpose of 45 minutes, I purposely blend them together. And then you have a third step today. So just to address that, um, on some level, in the end, I'm probably a very idiosyncratic, can you say this, Bartesian, Roland Bart, um, because what Bart says, right, what Bart does is kind of amazing thing. He basically, uh, and he basically he gives up he gives up on this notion that we're going to discover just these natural codes that are out there 
right, that we're going to discover this intrinsic natural order in bodies. And he says, I'm going to show to you in a novel, in effect, the way in which the codes are producing all of these. And there's something a little more sinister in that. It's not just some mythological indigenous culture, but it's like, because the story as Saracen is famously, is about a man who falls in love with a woman who it turns out is a castrati, and is actually, and the discovery that his lover has this other body is what also undoes all of the codes. There's something unassimilable. And for Bart, that's the moment of political promise, right? So in a way, part of what I'm doing, I think, right, I'm describing how people like me, Bates and Levy Strauss, embrace this idea of a neutral concept of codes and systems. It was partially in response to what, by any stretch of the imagination, and my, well, not by any stretch, my impression uh, was often motivated by a deeply humane attachment and a, a, an attempt to show that indigenous cultures had an indigenous, had a logic and rationality on par with Western science. And by the time the late 60s rolled around, people like Bart are saying, no. The codes themselves are part of what is producing this. And, you know, and I think we can read parts of Bart's biography into this, this refusal of codes, the notion that there are bodies and practices that subvert the codes from within, and we're going to spend two years reading a novella, is, is, an, is sort of an attempt to, to me to thematize the technocracy. And he does this, if you go back to the original lectures, he's talking quite a bit about technocracy in May 68. May 60, he's, part of the way he explains his critique of codes, he says the May 68ers, they're trying to come up with new government policies that will be liberatory. And he says, this is, you know, this is the new boss, same as the old boss, trying to come up with a technical system to govern. And he says, we're here to undo the codes. So part of what I'm writing is this history of a changing optimism about what it might mean to understand society in terms of codes and systems. It's gradual kind of imminent critique which is very different from rejecting the theory altogether. But you know, in a way, he's saying we're all part of producing the system with our bodies, but we can, we can create noise from within. And people like Michel Serre and the Parasite, and they all kind of do it in their own way. And so within that, I think we can segue to your second question. Um, I'm not sure if this is a smooth transition, but I'll try. Uh, um, well, and just in the first, in a very general instance, um, part of what I'm, I'm trying to do a critique of projects to which I am deeply attached. I'm a little, I'm, it's, it's striking to me how many digital humanities projects promise new global inclusion of diverse cultures to overcome Western canons by a new comprehensive system of capture. Many of these projects are really important and exciting and incredibly valuable. Um, but I think there's a rhetoric there that echoes something that I saw in Livy Shouse and Mead and Bateson. And there's part of Bart, which is, so I talked to one colleague about this, described Bart as interested in deformative readings. And I wonder how our new cultural technical systems of capture today, instead of just mapping the world that's out there and giving voices to people that supposedly exist, which is the technocratic move par excellence, we have something that's more like instruments, instruments of whatever. But within that, and this is a footnote that actually undoes the whole story, I think, in a way. The whole point is, as soon as you, there, there, is, there is a way, and I think this um, happened in moments in the 80s and 90s, with earlier histories of cybernetics, to end up in that right-wing place. This right-wing place that denies systems, that denies structure, denies structures of violence, right? 
And on some level, you have to hold on to structural and systemic relations for progressive political causes. Do you see what I'm saying? This is why I admire, Bart is both saying these structures and systems are part of the problem, and yet at the same time, he's not saying they're not real. This is all a technocratic projection. He's saying they're real and they need to be undone. And so something about that relates to the, the new codes today. At the end of this, there's still an exercise of valorization of all of these weird theorists and their deeply, deeply compromised projects that I think says, oh, okay, some of this went wrong, some of it was admirable, but seeding all of these powers of coding, decoding, vacuum of culture, analyzing it, making it tractable, seeding it, for example, to institutions outside the human sciences is also, I think, uh, inviting new forms of global political violence. And is trying to say, like, we know a few things about this. We can participate in this. But let's try not to fall into some of the myths. Like, I, stuff that, I mean, there is an aspect of what these people like Levi Strauss say that's pretty, I mean, it's wildly fantastic. And I think, I think we can have new material histories of technology and the human sciences today that appreciate how these things work together and that's what I'm trying to offer. I don't know if that answers the question. Thank you. Uh, many more questions, but the floor is open to everybody. <laughs> yes. Oh, thanks for a great talk. Connecting a lot of things that I'd never quite seen in this way. But, and, and really just a kind of uh, slight historical addition the, the slide of, of um, Bali also reminds me in that period of uh, Alan Lomax here in the United States recording uh, you know, Native American music, I mean indigenous American music, some of the Native American, a lot of it, yes. Appalachian and Black. And, um, and uh, his recording engineer is Jared Wiesner, who not only goes on to the radiation lab and presidency of MIT, but also founds the media lab here. And a very similar project to this mm -hmm. in the audio domain. And that becomes the Library of Congress collection. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of and I don't get into it as much today, but what's interesting to me is when you, there's a history of this that also runs through the engineers themselves. The engineers themselves are not just doing technical research. They're deeply attached to technology as having important political and social purposes, you know what I mean? Um, so I love this, what you're describing with Wiesner serving as uh, Lomax's assistant, um, yeah, it's beautiful and it's sort of this, uh, evocative of, of this dream of media technology uh, recuperating cultures threatened with disappearing, you know what I mean? Another question. Um, there is a time gap between your conclusion and your presentation, obviously. Uh, so, what do you do with this time gap? Uh, and, and especially since in the 80s and 90s uh, in France, uh, around Descola and Bouvresse, um, and even Bourdieu to a certain extent. Um, an entire body of theory uh, developed 
and which didn't take into account the idea of coding and, and, and cybernetics as well, and was actually very critical. So uh, to what extent would this be also a way not only to think in terms of new genealogies, but also sort of counter genealogies, right? Mm -hmm. To think the, the today's politics. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, the short answer is yes. I think, um, you know, I purposely stopped the story at this moment where the, the, the story is sputtering out and the cybernetic dream is collapsing, right? Um, and, you know, part of that is because, in a way, this is a, the history has a very elementary just goal of saying, okay, these human scientists on the scene of cybernetics were not just interpreters, but they were on the scene in a more foundational manner. And so I'm just trying to fill out that, that fuller history and what I see is its moment between roughly 1930 and 1970. Um, but I suppose on some level, uh, I, I would absolutely agree both what takes place in, the Fran in France and the United States between 1970 and whatever, 2000. Counter histories, absolutely counter histories, but on the same sense, um, uh, I, think, I think one could probably accuse me of also being slightly nostalgic. There was something I found really admirable about this incredible ambition that people in psychology, anthropology, linguistics could really make new sense of their objects with technical media. And so I'm partially trying to valorize something that quickly fell out of fashion by 1970, although I think there are these other, um, these other counter histories. Yeah, so. Oh, after 1970? Yes. Oh, I, the, I, I mean, I think it's a very simple, I mean, it's relatively simple. Um, the, uh, so there are a couple of things that happen here. In a very practical manner, um, uh, so it turns out all these promises that everything from kinship to phonemes to fashion systems would be calculable and turned into a kind of rational science that, that did not work. In France, it didn't work partially because they didn't have the computers. But even when you had the computers, it's very, very complex. That's, and, you know, and it's in a, in a sense, like Noam, Noam Chomsky was on to some very important things when he critiqued this kind of stochastic modeling of language. That raises a question of if things like large language models would changed the fate had they been available in 1970. I think they might have. Um, but the other thing is, um, uh, apart from the empirical failures, uh, how would you describe it? Um, a profound sense of pessimism pervades the scene, right? So even Bart's mythologies, as playful as it is, as playful as it is, and as much as it's critiquing and turning upside down, indigenous culture and so-called you know, Western uh, rational technical scientists, um, it still has this dream of intelligibility. Do you know what I mean? And this is that first state of, stage of coding that you're talking, that Bruno's telling us about. There, there's still this notion that when, when Bart is writing like a primer of semiotics in 1962 or something, the notion that there's a set of rules by which you can do this. There's, that's a profound, and it's gonna put the human sciences on new foundations. By 1967, number one, there's no primer by which you can just be apply it. Number two, if you could apply it, then you're working, you're probably working for the state and 
putting violence into effect. In the United States, it's much, much more associated with Vietnam and what that does to feelings about science and technology. Um, but across the whole scene, and this is also where you know, people like Bart, and his, he's associated with Telkel, they're all getting invested in Maoism and things like that. Revolutionary poetics, which is trying to take Jakobson's structural poetics and put it in the service of a Marxist critique, including a Marxist critique of science. Because they've gradually, intelligibility has given, given way to dreams of noise and disorder uh, as a possible more realistic solution. If I might be so bold, don't you think it's also just that it was hard? I, I mean, this after a decade of work, I think of um, you know Jill Lepore unpacked the story of um, simulmatics and uh, their difficulty with the 1960 election in developing those predictive models for a whole host of reasons. And then she looks at Poole's work here, um, going into that. But I, I just was struck in reading that book, and I'm reflecting on your comments right now, that um, in this climate of protest, of rejecting the man, rejecting rules, reject, you know, like that things were harder. They just the computers were harder. It wasn't just that they were limited or less time. It, it's just we're all naive, mm -hmm. you know, and we start with these utopian ideals. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I just would add that footnote is that I think you're also characterizing a moment of when optimism is confronts actual experience. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say disillusionment exactly, but I, I, I think yeah. this is a pretty important historical moment in the, in the 1970s for a lot of yeah. um, social science practitioners. I also, I would, so I would agree with everything Debbie said about the, this dealing with the complexity of the problem so that a certain optimism Failed. And then the other thing is where it did, the optimism persisted in a certain sense is like, so Bateson's work gets republished as things like this paperback, pulp paperback, Ecology of Mind. That you know you can pick up at supermarkets, it's being championed by Stuart Brand, people like Fred Turner have written a lot about this. But he's also, that optimism is also slipping into a kind of girl-like, kind of like a little bit of hippy-dippy esotericism, right? So where the, where the optimism persists, Something is happening that I think is gradually depoliticizing it, and that's in a way worse than what you're describing, uh, grappling with the intractability so of the problem. So it comes back in the form of Facebook <laughs> and, and Google. Well, it's interesting to think of 1970 as your cutoff point, and then to think about French film theory, which starts to emerge in the 70s and very engaged in semiotics and linguistics in a kind of purist, sometimes depoliticized way, and uh, people like Christian Metz in particular, and then just kind of start shifting into psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's because they've thought, well, semiotics, I don't, I don't think anyone would have said it's at a dead end, but like we push this as far as we can, just semiotics, qua semiotics, and so we have to bring psychoanalysis into yes the picture. Um, 
and both, but, but, but both of those modes, the semiotic mode and the psychoanalytic mode, even though psychoanalytic mode was more overtly political, it's not political about Algeria or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. it's political in a very contained kind of way. And the, I, so, I, yeah, exactly. And the one thing I would add is, uh, like in the French film theory, it's interesting because semiotics, psychoanalysis, and also Marxism, which they're all drawing on in this structural mode. You know, again, we received, we, I say I, right, as an undergraduate student at Bard College in the 1990s, like I received these as like literary theories and cultural theories, but these are supposed to be rigorous social sciences. And they're trying to figure out which is, the, is semiotics the right one, is psychoanalysis, is Marxism. Uh, and they're supposed, and I think this comes back also to part of what Debbie's describing, this growing sense that all of these things that are prom promising a science of culture, a system of culture, culture slips away, and if culture does slip away, that's probably the only political promise there is to culture at all. Do you know what I mean? You know? When, when Bart was doing the word-by-word -word reading of Saracen, Christian Metz was his research assistant, or his TA, his teaching assistant. <laughs> so you go back to the lectures and he's like saying, oh, you can find our assistant, uh, Monsieur Metz, at this address. He can help you access the films. Just, you know, a very small world. Yes. First, thank you. I am a sociologist who used network mapping. And so like to have the sort of genealogy that you've, you've traced here is just kind of blowing my mind, thinking about what went into the theories that I use and the methods at the Media Lab, MIT Media Lab, Media Cloud, et cetera. Um, just curious, because this isn't my field, what was your method? Like, oh, for my work? Yeah, like to me it seemed, it's just amazing that you've kind of looked through all of these different human sciences yeah. and traced you know, yes. in different scenes. So was this sort of the pro project over years where you just kind of saw this sort of coalesced, or was it a little more like, did you do a network mapping, per se? Uh, yeah. Speaking of TAs and, yeah. 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 So this is, um, this is a really helpful question. Um, so the project came out of a, a place that's very, very hazardous, particularly if you're running a PhD thesis, right? This thing looks like that thing, and then it looks like that thing, and it looks like that thing, and constantly seeing similar discourses and similar modes of analysis, uh, but it, it run, ran the risk of becoming a project that was like, um, just like analogies run wild, right? Like, and you can't, you can't defend your research on that grounds, exactly. So, one of the, so what, I, you know, what I ended up doing, and this is partially from, you know, from working at places like the MIT archives and Jakobsen's papers, who are kind of a map of an entire world. Uh, I, like, you know, I had a kind of vulgar, like willfully vulgar actor network theory approach to it. Where if I'm gonna say two things are connected, they have to be really connected. There have to be letters or mutual citations or attending events together so that when I say these two things look alike, it can't, it's not just me claiming, but you know, so bit by bit through archives, correspondence, sometimes unpublished lectures and things like that, you know, I would find where there were mutual reinforcing feedback loops, right? So for example, in Germany, you have Habermas and Luhmann talking about communication. With the exception of a couple of citations here and there of Bateson, they're not, 
part of this circuit. You know what I mean? It's just, it's related, but it's free-floating. Um, you know, whereas there's, there's a much closer connection to um, Bart and Jakobsen, or you have people like Alain Bandieu, who I don't write about, send, we're sending a letter to Jakobsen saying, can you give us an essay on automata theory? And I'm like, oh, okay, that's relevant because they're invoking cybernetics, they're in correspondence. And, but this also leads to, you know, obviously, what's, you know, like limits to the project, right? Part of the reason it's a history of technocrats and technocracy is because it's, it's relying on archival sources. And these people who's, who, for whom these connections are recorded are generally, and okay, French, or French academics and European academics, again, they're functionaries, they're civil servants, right? So it's, it's, it's an undercurrent to this talk, a subtext. Um, they're much, they, they embrace, embrace their role as call it civil servants, technocrats, a little more than North American academics sometimes, or United States academics. Um, but uh, so you, you have this, the decision to follow things like archival records and correspondence and scientific articles means it's inevitably mapped from above. So here and there you have, you have critiques of Mead and Bateson by their informants, but there's not a lot of it because they did not exist within the technocratic system and they didn't exist in those archives that I'm dealing with in the same way. Or, you know, you have someone like Roland Barthes who himself is, you know, he's very much living uh, like a queer life of uh, a certain way and dealing with queer themes in his literature. So, you know, he's not, he's a little bit involved in the world in which he describes, but this archival method also is part of what made the history about technocracy because of all these other people who are affected by this research that are not represented in those archives. You know what I mean? Well, perhaps we are done. So thank you. Uh, thank, thank you, you so very much. much.